a stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Utah Weekly Forum, a public affairs show dedicated to learning more about the issues affecting our lives and health and exploring the resources available in our diverse communities to help. Here's your host, Rebecca Cressman. Welcome to this week's edition of Utah Weekly Forum. I'm your host, Rebecca Cressman, and we have an opportunity to learn from and open up our conversations about eating disorders and how prevalent they are in our children's lives and adult lives by joining us today, Dr. Kristen Francis, who is with Huntsman Mental Health Institute. So talk to us a bit, Dr. Francis. This is the month where it is Eating Disorder Awareness Month. So what should we be aware of? Oh, so glad you asked. So in general, most eating disorders show up in a person by the age of 25. So we want to make this is really an, an area that we're looking for, you know, disruptions in our children and in our teenagers and our college students. OK, definitely mostly women are going to be um, affected, but 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 men and boys, when they are affected, it's at two times higher rates than their female peers. So eating disorders in in men and boys is often missed. And so they are sicker longer. Um, And so we just really want to be aware of that too. So young people um, definitely start to show signs of disordered eating when they're little, like right before puberty. And then again, right before they go to college. So those are the two age groups. And this can be like disorders in being a Afraid of food, eating overly healthy, um, suddenly eating in secret, avoiding family meals, um, lots of talk about, you know, their weight, their shape, wanting to change that, suddenly demonstrating increased exercise. In boys, they often feel pressure to be like really big and muscular or like really lean. Um, so just watching for your child's weight uh, to shift or some secretive behaviors coming in, and then definitely some preoccupation with food and food rules. Now, it, it, as you share that, that it can occur in in much more concentration at those puberty, you know, that change from childhood mm-hmm. to teenagehood and the, the change from teenagehood to adulthood. But, you know, as parents, we watch our children and some kids um, are complicated eaters when they're young. So it, yes. is, is, there, is there a connection at all between um, those children that you you can't get to eat, you know, the food, you can't get them, or that is a different stage of childhood development. Yeah, so picky eaters, you know, children children in general go through different feeding stages in their development, just like our kids go through stages and everything. However, most children's bodies follow a growth curve, and most children intuitively eat, meaning they eat when they're hungry, they stop when they're full, occasionally they, you know, eat even when they're not hungry, like kind of socially, if it's a birthday party, that kind of stuff. But big studies show that kids are able to regulate their appetite really well. Um, So it gets concerning when we start hearing that children are increasingly talking about body dissatisfaction, because that's not coming from them internally, that's coming from society. So some of the statistics are that 80% 
of 10-year-old children are afraid of being fat, that that is a bigger fear for them than most other medical illnesses that they could have. Oh, my goodness. 80%. So that's how preoccupied our children are with the messages they're hearing from us and from the the media and from the world around them. Wow. Yes. Yes. And almost 50% of nine to 11 year olds, these are third graders, um, are sometimes or very often on diets. That's by their self-report anonymous measures and almost 60% of adolescent girls engage in what we call severe weight restriction behaviors, meaning crash dieting, fasting, purging, um, using diet pills or excessive caffeine or even laxatives. Uh, So we really have to be on the lookout uh, for different behaviors. And then also 40% of first to third grade girls have said they want to be thinner. 40%. Forty mm. percent just makes your heart Huge. so, so it does. right. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then when you get to when you get to the campus age, ninety percent of women surveyed, ninety percent admitted to controlling their weight through dieting. So dieting in general is the biggest predictor of someone going on to eat develop an eating disorder. So while we can see you know kids being picky when they're younger, again most bodies grow how they need to grow, but then it's when all of society's messages start kind of leaking through to our kids, our young people, and they start trying to change their weight or shape. So like they suddenly want to change their weight for prom or they want to change their weight for, you know, like whatever sport they're in, or maybe they want to just eat, quote, healthier. Like those are all signs that in symptoms that are not normal for kids and young people. We don't want them doing that. That's not healthy for them. And and this, for those who've just joined us, uh, Dr. Kristen Francis is a psychiatrist at the Huntsman Mental Health Institute. Um, focusing a lot of her energies on child psychiatry. Uh, So a great understanding of what motivates and influences our children and how we can help, Um, you know, gently, I'll use the term like course correct um, and and help them. Now, you mentioned it's dangerous for for young men as well because it goes hidden for so long. And so when you... When you share that, does that mean that if we can identify um, the beginnings of an eating disorder, we have a greater chance of treating it? Absolutely. In eating disorder treatment, which in young people has an 80% chance of recovery if treated by the family-based model. I mean, 80%, that's better outcomes than most like childhood, you know, other medical issues. So 80% is awesome. So if detected early, we can change the course. And most young people do not have to go on and struggle with this throughout their 20s, 30s into, you know, adulthood with their own children. So we definitely want to intervene early on. And we're going to talk about adults too, because we have, you know, 20 20 minutes together. And, um, you know, one of the, I remember uh, talking with you um, a year or so ago, and you you talked about how the language that we use as adults around our kids is when I'm getting dressed in the morning, for example, let's go back when my kids were little, when I was going dressed in the morning, getting dressed in the morning and my kids are, you know, there with me, they're hearing me react to my image in the mirror. And they they are right. learning about the healthy or unhealthy relationship that we have with yeah. our bodies, and we model it right at home. 
Absolutely. So in general, we want to recommend no body talk, which is really, really hard. It's hard for me, and I've had a ton of training and coaching around it, and I still forget, like I accidentally will slip out that one of my children is my taller child or my other child is my, you know, more athletic child. But any body talk is really um, something we advise against. So instead, focusing on, you know, your children's you know, accomplishments or their motivations for things. So, you know, this is so-and-so. They love to run. They love to jump. They are really creative. They work really hard in school. Those types of characteristics are really great. And helping your child feel really um, excited about what their body can do for them. I mean, children are growing. Their bodies are changing. They go through different phases of what their bodies look like, especially right before puberty. A lot of bodies um, have to gain more fat in order to actually get the hormone response to go through puberty. And so children can get really self-conscious, especially during the pre-pubertal phase. And so really focusing on helping them feel confident, strong, knowing that their bodies are changing, and then focus on all the good things their bodies do. Like your bodies let you learn, your bodies let you play, you know, wow, like your your, you, your body lets you move. Um, that Those are really helpful techniques for your kids. Not talking about your own weight or shape is is really the best thing you can do. So not focusing on how you feel about your body, um, which is hard. It is. It's absolutely hard because so many of us have been conditioned to focus yeah. on what, you know, how how close our own body and hair and and, uh, you know, um, our, our size is reflected in what we think might be the ideal. Uh, out yeah, there. And what is our value, right? Mm-hmm. So when we see someone, we automatically don't even recognize that we'll say like, you look so good. Oh my gosh, you look so beautiful. Have you lost weight? And like in our society, that's kind of a compliment, right? To comment on someone's weight or shape. And it's really a way that you have to kind of overcorrect, unteach yourself. And and we know it's an issue because you share that statistic at the very beginning. 81% of 10-year-old children are afraid of being fat. And you were sharing they're more afraid of being fat than any other health issue that they could face. And I remember that there was um, research coming out. I can't remember if it was Reader's Digest or Good Housekeeping. And they were asking women, what's their number one health issue? And they also put fat as their number one health issue, whether or not it had, um, they had a healthy uh, body, you know, BMI and and, and all that, that was on the top of their mind as the top issue. So let's talk, you mentioned that there are things to watch for. Um, So let's talk about that because treatment early for children and adults um, is the way to go to get the most effective uh, response uh, for healing. Right. So the the biggest thing you want to look for is dieting. So we define dieting as any effort to change your weight or shape. So that could be through, quote, eating healthy, you know, eating certain foods, cutting out other foods, watching portions. Those are all like hidden diet messages, Um, you know. Over, you know, moving more in a different way to like change your weight or shape. It's not moving more just because you want to move more and you want to maybe increase like your your cardiovascular strength. It's actually moving to, to change your weight. So watch for that, and then watch for people to start eating secretively, um, smaller amounts, changes in their weight, either up or down, and definitely then changes in mood. You know, this is why people. Uh, pay so much attention to eating disordered behavior because it often leads to depression 
and suicidal thoughts, and it especially increases in anxiety. So eating disorders are basically the second leading cause of death in uh, in young in women, young people in in the United States. Like they're second only to opioid overdoses. Like that's how significant. That, and most of these deaths mm-hmm. are from suicide. Wow, which is stunning, and and most of us won't know that there that the eating disorder was the beginning of that. Right. Uh, of that. Okay, so you said watch for those things. Can you walk me through an example of? Yep. Okay, I am seeing this in my child. Suddenly, next step. What do I do as a Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Yeah, so next step is to talk to them. I always say, let's be really transparent and bring up either directly or indirectly, like, hey, I've noticed this about you, and I'm concerned that this could be something you're worried about. What do you think? Or you could even say, hey, I read this article or I saw this on Facebook, you know, or so-and-so was talking about, you know, eating disorders or people worrying about their weight. And I, it made me start to think about you. And I wonder if you know anyone who's struggled with this or if you yourself have. So directly or indirectly asking about symptoms, sharing your concerns in a non-judgmental way, just a genuinely like, I am really worried, just like you would, you know, if you saw them suddenly becoming paler and you worried that they were anemic or, you know, they were more thirsty and you thought they might have diabetes. Like you wouldn't hesitate to bring something up like that, but this is the same type of thing. This is a life-saving intervention. You expressing your concern in a loving way. The next step, yep, would then to be to contact your primary care doctor. They are the best next step resource and they can refer you to a specialist if needed. Okay, good. Thank you. Uh, and um, I also want to talk a little bit about um, the broader effects of eating disorder yeah. in our society. So we talk about its prevalence in youth and the two crucial time periods that we should really be focusing on in addition to the warning signs, the prepubescent time and then the teenage to adulthood time. Let's talk about populations that are affected by eating disorder so we can be aware of that. How prevalent is it in adults overall? Well, in general, we estimate about 10%, so one-tenth of the population, or almost 30 million Americans, will have an eating disorder in their lifetime. So that that's huge. I mean, and we're defining eating disorders as not only anorexia, which is what most people think of, or bulimia nervosa, but also binge eating disorder, which is actually our most common 
eating disorder and people don't really know about it. It's eating more food than you, you want to or feel like you should, you know, quote unquote should in the sense of loss of control and you do it in secret and you feel really bad about yourself and you don't try any what we call compensatory behavior. So you're not restricting the next day or, or over-exercising or using diet pills. Um, so 10% of the U.S. population is affected black teenagers 50% more likely than their white uh, counterparts to have bulimia. Um, Hispanic uh, persons are significantly more likely also to suffer from bulimia. And then Asian American college students have reported higher levels of body dissatisfaction uh, towards obesity than their than their counterparts. Um, so lots of people in our society are affected. Gay men are seven times more likely to report binge eating. Um, 30% of transgendered persons use their eating disorder to modify their body without hormones. Uh, so really, really, you know, everyone's affected. Everyone's affected. And and I had a very close friend who had the binging disorder. And mm-hmm. um, she would call me at times when she was mm-hmm. in that position and talk about an overwhelming wave of self-loathing that would come mm-hmm. over her. Um, and but and and so there is a, a real um, psychological, emotional um effect that is prompting that binging behavior right and then Absolutely. afterwards and so that also is is just going to be so concerning for you as a psychiatrist because it it you mean you have so many people who are feeling these waves of intense emotionality um tied to the food con- that they eat Absolutely. A lot of people are strong feelers who have eating disorders. So they feel their feelings very, very strongly, intensely, and they often resort to, you know, food restriction, food overeating, purging to manage those beha- to manage those feelings. It kind of becomes like this unhealthy coping mechanism um, and an over-focus kind of externally. And so a lot of treatment is helping people really sit with their feelings, tolerate those negative feelings, and to know that those feelings will pass and that they won't overwhelm them to the point that they can't endure. Um, so that is a lot of what we do in eating disorder treatment. And there is a term that you use, body dysmorphia. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Body dysmorphia is a certain eating disordered condition where you are uh, – you perceive a defect in your body that that other people don't. So you, it can be something like you you feel like your nose is gargantuan when it's not, um, but you can also feel like your body is, uh, you know, grossly disproportionate to what your body really is. So you you lose perspective of what your body looks like, or you get really focused on certain aspects of your body, like your thighs, and you can't you know, even go through your day without just being distressed about the size of your thighs, the way your thighs feel when you walk into a room in certain clothing, you know, that everybody's looking at you. So you get really preoccupied with one or more physical characteristics of your body. And I was reading that veterans are at greater risk of that that effect. I thought that was interesting and wondered if it's a result of the stress that they can be put under. Um, and, of course, I'm not the psychiatrist. But if we look at external yeah. pressures of, of yeah. why we think our body needs to be a certain way, we can get off rail, right? Or our minds yeah, can. Yeah, so- mm-hmm. 
intuitively I can kind of, you know, figure out some reasons maybe, which again would be like, you know, the, the, the information on veterans is interesting. If you kind of think about what we ask our, our military to do is like be pretty physically conditioned to endure certain circumstances. Um, but there may be some overemphasis on uh, muscul- muscularness or the way your body has to look in order to perform. And so that that's kind of what makes me wonder why maybe, you know, 20% of female military members have body dysmorphic uh, disorder um, or 13% of males. I mean, that's huge. Um, again, you know, eating disorders look different usually in men versus women, um, and the pressures are different, but they are just as severe in terms of the effects. Well, and for those who just joined us, we're joined with a psychiatrist with the Huntsman Mental Health Institute, Dr. Kristen Francis, who's always an extraordinary resource helping us understand. And before we end this interview, which we still have about five minutes together, we will give you some information you can call and, and get follow up because I know all of us can see either our loved ones or ourselves. And as we're talking about this or, you know, I was looking at how athletes are more likely to um, develop an eating disorder. And and that intuitively makes sense to me, too, because we're focusing on, you know, the sinewiness of our biceps and the, you know, the, the strength mm-hmm. of our quads and the the rippled yep. abdomen, you know, to make sure that it's as, as cut as it needs to be or the ability to go long distance at a certain speed. So when, when we embrace um, healthy activities because we know moving athletically is healthy for us. Mm-hmm. We just have to, in my mind, be aware that our minds are vulnerable to taking it to to be taking it yes. too far. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of natural athletes in the world, like people whose bodies are make them natural long distance runners, or who are built in a way that gymnastics. You know, they are powerful explosiveness in terms of their muscle muscle capabilities. Um, And then there are people that also, you know, try to make their bodies be something they may not be by changing their muscle mass or changing their fat content. And athletes are really pressured to perform, right? Like that's what it all comes down to. And so there are certain things you can do to increase your performance, but sometimes it it starts to, to come at a mental cost which is where I see the intersection of athletes and having eating disorders. And so an athlete um, may be able to change their shape in some ways without having any mental, you know, side effects, maybe no depression, no anxiety, still feel good about their body, recognize that this is just kind of what they need to do in this moment. But most athletes at some point are going to have some psychological effects, including, you know, fantasizing about food, uh, feeling overly tired. And when athletes' performance starts to decline because of their weight and shape changing behaviors, that's usually when I see them. Um, you know, people, we, we see people at the U who uh, are going to be in the Olympics and they are starting to have some struggles with the impact, you know, the athletic requirements are having on their bodies. And so we have to help them kind of find that happy medium so they can perform, um, but not have it be at the cost of their mental well-being. And that normalizes it for me. If we look at an Olympian and we say, look, how incredible, ideal and strong he or she is, um, they are as vulnerable as we can be. Yeah. Um, um, to developing eating disorders that can affect us. As you said, one of the most deadliest um, 
you know, mental illnesses that condition. we condition yes. that we can develop. So I want to spend the next four minutes talking yes. about that. There is a phrase that I've heard you use before. That is um, for those who have eating disorders, you didn't cause this. It You didn't cause it. And they have the power um, and support to change. So I want to talk Absolutely. about that. And where do we get support, Dr. Francis? So most eating disorders have a genetic predisposition. So if you yourself have an eating disorder, your children are more likely than their counterparts to have one. So there is a greater responsibility in really trying to help them have normal, you know, healthy eating attitudes and beliefs as they grow. Uh, when I say healthy, I mean different than like what society thinks is healthy. So um, you didn't cause this and you have a responsibility to yourself and to your children to really correct things because you are, you are worthy, you deserve this. So the first thing to do is really recognize that your thoughts and, and behaviors, you know, have gotten beyond your ability to manage and it's interfect, you know, it's interfering with your, your ability to be a student, a, a you know, significant other, a parent, your job performance, all those things. Um, and then you need to ask for help. And that is often the hardest. And going to a loved one who you know can be non judgmental to you and say, look, I really think, you know, I've read about these symptoms. I think that this is where I'm at. I think this might be me right now. Can you help me? And primary care doctors are really good first line. Um, kind of inter, step intervention, um, and then they can refer you to specialists. So at HMHI, we have a lot of specialists who can help assess you for an eating disorder. They would interview you. They could give you some, like, pen and paper tests to kind of look at your beliefs about food and weight. Um, and then we can help you find um, a dietitian who can normalize, you know, all foods are okay. There's no good or bad foods. Um, we can help you find a psychiatrist if needed um, who can kind of oversee things. And then uh, definitely a therapist to help you work through managing, changing your eating behaviors and your feelings. Okay. And talk to us. Is there a phone number that we can call? Yeah. Um, share with that with us, yeah. please. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you would like more information, you can call 801 583 2500. So it's 801-583-2500. Or I always say go to our website, www.hmhi.utah.edu. That's Huntsman Mental Health Institute utah.edu and we have a really great website devoted to um, disordered eating and when to recognize when it, it's gone into having an eating disorder and that's a great place to start for resources. Alright, the website is www.hmhi.utah.edu and that phone number for any question about mental condi health conditions is 801-583-2500 a tremendous resource in our community, the Huntsman Mental Health Institute. And they can kind of, uh, I'll just say almost triage. This is where you can get this information. This is where the help is. This is the type of treatment that can be offered. And it's such, so helpful for us um, to be able to have that. Dr. Kristen Francis, thank you for joining us during National Eating Disorder Awareness Month and helping us all understand what to watch for and understand that we can heal uh, from this. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Rebecca. Utah Weekly Forum is produced by KSFI FM 100.3 in Salt Lake City, a Bonneville International Station. Subscribe to the Utah Weekly Forum podcast online and email us at Rebecca at FM100.com. 
I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts.